Good morning. What kind of worship does God require or even desire? That's an important question for us to consider at the outset of this message, which I've entitled, The Worship That God Requires. And it's very important for us to receive the right answer because if for no other reason, it would be this one. Everything we do in worship is worthless if God does not accept it. So we really need to receive his answer to this all-important question. And there's no better place for us to turn to than to his word. Please open up your Bibles to Psalm 50. And as we look at Psalm 50 to better understand the worship that God requires, we'll see two major problems in worship from God's perspective and what the solutions are to these problems. So let's begin. We'll cover the first six verses under the heading, The Glorious Judge. He is, in fact, the main subject in the opening line. There are two key aspects of this glorious judge we need to consider, beginning with his divine names. And there are three names given to us in the opening line. First, we see the name, the Mighty One. The Hebrew word for this divine name is El. It can also mean power or might. It can also refer to pagan deities, as mentioned in Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? The Hebrew word El is translated as the gods with a small g. But the second divine name of the glorious judge stated in verse 1 is God with a capital G or Elohim in Hebrew. It is used exclusively of God in the creation account. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now Elohim also means gods with a small g. But the scriptures use this term primarily to identify the supreme God. For instance, Psalm 136, verse 2 commands, Give thanks to the God, Elohim, of God's small g, Elohim. Thus, when referring to the one true God, Elohim is plural in form, but singular in meaning. This pluralization, called a plural of majesty, 
also implies the triune nature of God, which can be seen in verses like Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God, Elohim, said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. But thirdly, Asaph identifies God's personal name, Yahweh. This is the unique name of the God of the Israelites, occurring over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. And since God reveals his personal name, it shows that he wants to be in relationship with and known by humans. Yahweh is the self-existent I am who I am, who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Yahweh is eternal, Psalm 93, verse 2. He is unchanging in nature, Malachi 3, verse 6. He is the source of every living being that exists, Revelation 4, verse 11. And he is faithful to his promises, Joshua 24, or 21 rather, verse 45. These are just a small sample of the many attributes of the glorious judge who is introduced in the opening line of this psalm by three of his divine names, El Elohim Yahweh, the mighty one, the mighty one, God, the Lord, Yahweh. But next, let us turn our attention from his divine names to his divine decree. We are told in verse 1 and 2 that this powerful triune God, Yahweh, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. Here we see that his authority covers all the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Therefore, his divine decree is directed to all mankind. Furthermore, the beams of his splendor are described as shining forth upon all nations. Then in verse 3, Asaph, who wrote Psalm 50, speaks in anticipation of the appearing of the Lord, stating, may our God come and not be silent. Like Asaph, we as believers should also be waiting in eager anticipation for the appearing of our Lord from heaven. Continuing in verse 3, Asaph expects that the Lord was coming to judge, for he goes on to depict the divine appearance with these vivid word pictures. Fire devours before him, and a storm whirls around him. And then in verse 4, 
through six, Asaph identifies the participants in the case as follows. He, that is God, calls the heavens above and the earth to render justice to his people. Gather my holy ones to me, those who have cut a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge Selah. What do we observe in these verses? We see that the inhabitants in the heavens and on the earth are summoned by God to witness the solemn scene when the glorious judge himself renders justice to his people. Yes, judgment will begin with his people. The same is true for the church. According to 1 Peter 4, 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Please notice again with me in verse 5 that God calls his people holy ones or saints who have made a covenant with him. These are the ones who will be gathered to him. The holy will be separated from the vile. For God has said, gather my holy ones to me. All are not saints who seem to be so. A separation will be made. And the heavens, we're told in verse 6, which includes God's abode where the angels are praising him, will proclaim his righteousness in the case at hand. For God himself is the judge. Selah. We should pause a moment in reverence, in sincere searching of heart, in humble dependence upon God, and in great expectation that he will again speak to us today in his word. Amen. Now with this scene in mind, Asaph continues his psalm by quoting God directly as he brings two charges against his people. This brings us to the next main section of this psalm, which is the first charge. In verses 7 through 13, the glorious judge makes the first indictment against his people. This charge is clearly intended for Israel, but it is equally applicable to the church in every generation. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
Romans 15, verse 4. So we should pay close attention to this solemn scene as the divine judge declares the futility of his people's worship before he offers them the remedy for the worthless worship they were offering. The Lord's first charge then is against ritualism. Ritualism is defined as the regular observance or practice of ritual, especially when excessive or without regard to its function. It is the belief that it is necessary for rites or repeated sets of actions to be carried out. Some theologians also refer to ritualism with terms such as ceremonialism, externalism, or formalism. Follow along as I read the first charge beginning with verses seven and eight. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. The first thing we notice in these verses is that God commands his people to pay attention to him. Hear, O my people. He is ready to both testify and to reprove. The Lord himself, who is never misled by anyone, enters as witness against his chosen nation. What will it be like for us when God testifies to the empty worship that is happening in the church? He says to his chosen people, I am God, your God. Verse seven, he had taken them out of Egypt to be a people for his own possession. So they were bound to give earnest heed. Furthermore, God makes it clear in verse eight that he was not reproving them for their continual sacrifices. His people were meticulous in keeping the letter of the law as they offered the prescribed sacrifices continually. But Israel had failed to recognize that God did not need their bulls or their goats. The divine judge continues to testify and reprove his people in the next several verses, continuing at verse nine. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, as well as its fullness. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of male goats? Let's pause here. From these verses, 
we may gain further understanding about the Lord's indictment against formalism or ritualism. His people foolishly thought they could please God by merely offering the animal sacrifices without realizing that he was seeking for something beyond the sacrifices. How could they imagine that Yahweh, possessor of heaven and earth, needed animal sacrifices when the entire animal kingdom belongs to him? Every beast, cattle, bird, and everything that moves in the field is his, according to verses 10 and 11. And in verse 12, he broadens their understanding by testifying, the world is mine, as well as its fullness. What an insult, then, when the people of God wrongly viewed sacrifices in and of themselves as pleasing to God. This is made even clearer for us from the teaching of Jesus, who plainly revealed in the gospel that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So what could the Lord of all creation, the owner of everything, possibly need? Psalm 24 verse 1 unequivocally states, the earth is Yahweh's, as well as its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. The apostle Paul, while preaching in Athens said, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Back to our text in Psalm 50. There are two rhetorical questions in verse 13, which also make it clear that he did not need animal sacrifices, even though they were required under the old covenant. Question number one, shall I eat the flesh of bulls? Question number two, or shall I drink the blood of male goats? The answer, of course not. God is not like the gods of the pagans who supposedly thrived on food sacrifices. The Lord does not depend on man's worship for survival. How dare anyone think this of the God who made heaven and earth? This brings us to a key scripture in this psalm which presents the remedy for ritualism. In verses 14 and 15, the powerful triune God, Yahweh says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of distress. 
I shall rescue you and you will glorify me. What is his solution for the fertility of external worship and mere outward religious acts? The righteous judge tells his people to stop looking at their sacrifices and offerings as gifts pleasing to him in themselves. Rather, they should present them as an expression of their gratitude to him and loving obedience to him in genuine faith. It is then that he would accept their gifts, but not while their hearts had no love and no thankfulness for him. We see in these verses that the people of God are being reproved for their lack of grateful adoration before the Lord. Undoubtedly, there are many today who fall under the same condemnation, who fail to acknowledge God or offer to him a sacrifice of thanksgiving, despite his many benefits towards them. They settle for empty external worship, which looks fine to man, but is abhorrent to God. So he offers them the divine solution for ritualism of simply going through the motion in worship. The remedy is threefold. First, the righteous judge commands his people to be grateful. He tells them in verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Second, the supreme judge commands his saints to be faithful. He further tells them in verse 14, and pay your vows to the Most High. Third, the divine judge commands his holy ones to be prayerful. In verse 15, he says to them, call upon me in the day of distress. Be grateful, be faithful, be prayerful. In thinking about these three commands, which are the remedy for ritualism, I have three questions of application. The first is this. Am I being a grateful child of God? Yes. The command given to all Christians at the end of Colossians 3.15 says, and be thankful. The second question is this. Am I being a faithful servant of God? In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says of himself and his fellow ministers, let a man consider us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards or managers of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found what? Faithful. Here's the third question. 
Am I being a prayerful believer before God? In Luke 18, Jesus presented a parable to teach his followers that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. So we who profess to have true saving faith in Christ should remember that God requires his people to be grateful, faithful, and prayerful. Notice also with me what will happen when God's people accept his divine remedy to correct their empty external worship. First, he promises deliverance in verse 15b. I will rescue you. Second, he expects to receive the glory and you will glorify me. That is the main issue of spiritual worship. Glorifying God. The glory belongs to him and him alone. We move further in the text to see that after reproving his people for their ritualism, the supreme judge then makes an even more serious indictment, if you can imagine. This brings us to the second charge. Here we will see God the Most High addressing the vile and the wicked person among his people. Whereas his first indictment was against ritualism, his second indictment is against rebellion. In verses 16 to 21, we read, But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recount my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil, and you harness your tongue for deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. What an indictment. It is against the wicked person who violates God's moral law and yet engages religiously in outward ceremony. Let's unpack these verses a bit, starting with the bold question from God himself in verse 16. What right have you to recount my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? It's as though God were saying, do you dare teach my law to others while you violate it yourself? You claim to be in covenant with me and yet disregard 
my holy standards. You mouth my words as if you love them, but your mouth speaks hypocritically. The same is true today. How terribly evil it is when a man explains doctrine but despises putting it into practice himself. So the supreme judge who knows all things backs up his rhetorical question with perfect reasoning beginning in the next verse. For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Now it's easy for us to miss this in our English translations of the Bible. But in the Hebrew text, the you in this verse is a personal pronoun of the second person singular. So this verse is not being directed to everyone, as in you all, but to certain individuals among the people, as in you. Yeah, you, singular. The idea being, if the cap fits, wear it. For you hate discipline, God says, and you cast my words behind you. The individual, while hearing this charge among the people, knew exactly if he or she hated God's instruction. Profane religious practitioners in Asaph's time thought they were too wise to learn. And three, they threw God's words, rather, away as worthless. Still, there are those today who pick and choose God's words they hate the practical parts of the Bible that challenge their comfort or their preference or even their tradition. They twist the scriptures to their own liking, never realizing that it will lead to their own shame. Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6 says, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he reprove you and you be found a liar. The glorious judge then continues his scathing rebuke of the wicked who are breaking his moral law, thinking they could appease him with religious ceremony. In verse 18, he says, when you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. The evidence against them is clear as God presents two more examples of their wickedness. His law states in the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Yet there were individuals who were delighted with a thief excusing the thief and thereby becoming complicit with the thief. Not only that, 
God's law states in the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Yet, some were engaging in marital unfaithfulness against their spouse or someone else's spouse, all the while trying to hide themselves under the cloak of piety. But what about us? Do we smile at dirty jokes? Or listen to vile talk? And put up with promiscuous behavior in our presence, whether in person or via social media or some other means? If we do, how dare we call ourselves Christians or followers of Christ? We're told in Hebrews 13 verse 4 that marriage is honorable to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For the sexually immoral and adulterers, God will judge. No amount of church attendance then, or ministry involvement, or even theological accuracy in preaching can cover stealing or sexual sin. Still, the Supreme Judge goes on to present more evidence against the wicked worshiper in verses 19 and 20. You let your mouth loose in evil, and you harness your tongue for deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. What we see exposed in these verses are sins of the tongue. While they appear to be righteous, God rebukes the vile individuals among his people who habitually spoke evil of others. How hypocritical were they to associate with the people of God and yet continue to practice deceitful speech? Notice also that the divine judge shines the spotlight of his judgment on the one who was a master of defamation, whose closest relative is not even safe from his or her slander. You slander your own mother's son. Sadly enough, such wicked people corrupt local churches everywhere and are abominable to God. All the while, the ninth commandment has never changed. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Remembering this, look again at Psalm 50. The supreme judge warns the wicked not to confuse his patience with his approval. He says to them in verse 21, These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. The Lord's silence did not mean that he agreed with the actions of the vile and the, the wicked. Yet they made the wrong conclusion about God's patience. 
The guilty ones in this case were actually convinced that the divine judge was no different from them. What will mankind not imagine about God? They offered sacrifices and thought they were accepted. They persisted in sin and remained unpunished. No swift justice came upon them. God's patience had continued for a long time. But the time finally came when the glorious judge broke the silence declaring, I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. The Lord rebuked them for their rebellion and hypocrisy, having exposed their sins for them to see. He was not blind to what they were doing. He was not deaf to what they were saying. Neither was he oblivious to what they were thinking. The divine judge clearly presented his case before them. You and I, as though we were witnesses to this solemn scene, would do well to remember Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. One of the things I am grateful for is a consistent pattern seen throughout Scripture, and it is this. The Lord always extends his mercy before he sends judgment. And so the Lord offers the vile offenders of his moral law the remedy for rebellion. In the concluding two verses of Psalm 50 then, we hear the judge of all the earth announcing, now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifies me, and he who orders his way, I shall show the salvation of God. What divine mercy is offered to the sinner in light of God's impending judgment? Now consider this, God says. Take these truths seriously. You who trust in religious works while living immorally, you who forget God, Think how displeasing you are if you draw near with your mouth and honor him with your lips, but you have removed your hearts far from him. Repent. Turn away from your sins and trust in the only one who can save you.
the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Lest I tear you in pieces, he warns, like a lion tears its prey, and there will be none to deliver. There is no other savior, no other refuge, no other hope if you reject the God who offers you the remedy for rebellion. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving glorifies me. Again, it's all about God's glory. It always was and it always will be about his glory. The best sacrifice is thanksgiving from a true heart of faith. God will not accept any form of hypocritical worship from a rebellious heart. But he promises, and he who orders his way, I shall show the salvation of God. A holy life is evidence of the Lord's salvation, never the cause of it. For no one can be made holy apart from divine effectual calling of God through the gospel. Whoever then would submit his or her way of life to God for his guidance is the one whose offerings would be pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. Peter puts it this way, for all those who have submitted their lives to the Lord and coming to him as to a living stone which is rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so, Heavenly Father, we have seen today the futility of ritualism, how empty external worship is because of a reliance upon the acts of worship apart from a true heart of gratitude and faith. Your warning was sounded today to those who are rebellious in heart while participating hypocritically in religious acts. We praise you for the authority of the word. And we thank you for the sufficiency of all scripture that is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Grant us then, O oh Lord, by your grace, to heed your word and turn from our wicked ways. May we be like David and may we be willing to pray, create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me.
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.